0: presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today we're talking about rights within the wizarding world. Welcome, everybody, to episode 48 of First Years. Today, we are talking about Order of the Phoenix, chapter 5. So, this chapter picks up right where we left off, which I know I've been saying a lot, and I guess, yeah, technically chapters pick up (laughs) right where you leave off, which was that Tonks tripped over the umbrella stand and we found out why everyone was keeping their voices down because there was just chaos in the halls from the portraits and we found out that the portrait that was screaming was Sirius's mother and we find out that number 12 Grimold Place is Sirius's parents home and they're using it as headquarters for the order of the phoenix So this is really the first time we've seen how wizards can live in close proximity to Muggles. You know, we've seen the Weasley house, but they kind of live sort of out and away from the Muggle cities. Sirius's family lived right in London and have a whole building of a house that's hidden in plain sight. And one of the first questions I have about Sirius' mother's portrait is that if she herself put the permanent sticking charm on the back of it so that no one would ever be able to get her down, why is that? I looked into the history of portrait painting for this episode since I feel like we usually associate painted portraits of people with royalty. And there definitely was a period in which only the rich upper classes could afford having their own portraits done, because it was expensive. But portraiture has actually been around since the time of ancient Egypt, and really got big about 5,000 years ago. And it wasn't just paintings, but drawings and sculptures as well. And they weren't just to preserve memories, like many of them are today, but to impress upon others power, importance, beauty, and wealth, trying to bring these qualities of the subject to the forefront. And painters who did portraits always made their subjects look better, otherwise they wouldn't get hired again. Portraiture has morphed throughout history, so for example. During the Renaissance and Middle Ages, we saw a switch to less realism in these portraits and more stereotypical expressions on the face and no depth to the background. Then in the 1500s is when the Mona Lisa was done, and this was new because the technique used was much softer in regard to the brushstrokes instead of harder lines. This is only when, again, only the wealthy and powerful could afford portraits because paint supplies weren't as easy to come by as they are today. They also became easier to get a hold of during the Industrial Revolution, which allowed those in the middle class to access supplies and not just learn to paint themselves, but there were also painters who began to paint middle and working class people. Then in the early 1900s, The form changed with artists like Picasso, and then in the middle of the century, we saw portraits come back with Andy Warhol and pop art. Today we have access to portraiture with our phones. We don't usually hire painters to paint our portraits. We'll just snap a photo with our iPhones, even more so than our digital cameras. (laughs) When was the last time you used one of those? So the access is more widespread today. And if you want to see examples, the blog post I learned most of this information from has a whole timeline with pictures. I'll have that linked in the show notes and also on our website, so be sure to check it out because it's actually pretty cool. But the wizarding world doesn't have access to cell phones. So like we've seen at Hogwarts, portraits that are paintings are still very popular in this world. Do you think it's a similar situation in which only upper-class families have access to getting their portraits done? Also do you think portraits age? Because Sirius' mother doesn't look super great in her portrait, and if we go along with the rule that painters would paint their subjects in the best light possible, you would think it would be the same here, where she'd be younger in the painting and not look how she does. So do you think that people age in their portraits? Also, what do you think it means that Sirius's mother has a portrait and made sure it wasn't going to go anywhere? What does that say about the family and what does that say about her? Also in this chapter, we see Mr. Weasley and Bill Weasley again. They're looking over something and Tonks accidentally knocks a candle over on top of it and they clear it away, but not before Harry is able to see that there's a plan of a building on it. So that's interesting. And we'll talk more about what we discover in this chapter in a minute, but first I wanted to chat about Harry and Sirius. There's a kind of kinship between them. There has been since the end of book three, but even more so now because they both have had miserable summers. While Harry has been left to his own devices in Privet Drive and has been kept in the dark all summer regarding news of Voldemort, as well as suffered through a Dementor attack and being expelled and then not expelled from Hogwarts and being set a hearing date, Sirius has been stuck inside for weeks. He's still a wanted man. His cover of being an Animagus is out because Wormtail would have told Voldemort by now, and so he can't really do anything. And while Harry points out that at least he's been kept up to date— Sirius points out that he has to get his reports from Snape, who he might hate more than Harry does, really. (laughs) Snape is out and about, quote, risking his life while Sirius is just there to listen and do nothing, except clean the house so everyone can live in it. So they kind of have had miserable months in different ways. Harry has been able to leave the house, but he's had no information. Meanwhile, Sirius has had access to all of the information that the Order is privy to, yet he can't go out and do anything about it. Which situation would you rather be in? And speaking of the information that Sirius has had access to and Harry hasn't, we finally get some questions answered and some insight into what is going on in the wizarding world in this chapter. The first thing we hear is the situation with the goblins. Bill said he can't figure out whether the goblins believe Voldemort is back or not, or whether they'll take sides at all. And although Mr. Weasley believes that they'll never join Voldemort's side, Lupin says it all depends on what Voldemort is going to offer them. Because if Voldemort is going to offer them rights and freedoms that they don't currently have under the current wizarding government, they'll be tempted to join up with him. Which is a very interesting bit of information. We've seen in Book 3 that wizards tend to be pretty anti-any creature that isn't a human or a wizard. They were ready to execute Buckbeak and would have done so if Harry and Hermione hadn't been able to set Buckbeak free. And it seems like, even though what we know of Voldemort is that he's evil he's prepared to do what it takes to get other creatures on his side. He's ready to do what others in the wizarding world haven't been willing to do, which is give the goblins rights and freedoms that they don't currently have. It's a clever move of Voldemort, if that's his game plan, and it says a lot about the state of the wizarding world. Goblins in this series are considered beings, not beasts, if we look at the information in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Beings are classified as, quote, any creature that has sufficient intelligence to understand the laws of the magical community and to bear part of the responsibility in shaping those laws, unquote. And the bearing part of shaping those laws is interesting because I wonder how true that actually is that goblins have a real part in shaping laws, if they're already denied certain rights in this world. And this seemed like a really good time to deep dive into goblins for our discussion. Maybe it'll give us more insight into why the wizarding world is the way it is when it comes to goblins, and also give us something to think about going forward if this issue with the goblins comes up again there is a lot of information about goblins when you look into folklore. There are many different kinds of goblins, and they're present in a variety of different cultures from Greece to Germany to the UK to Japan. Many of their qualities overlap with fairies, although in some cases they're considered opposite of the fae, since the fey is good and goblins are bad, but of course that depends on which beliefs around the fey you subscribe to, And there are some good goblins and some bad goblins. The term demonic was thrown around a lot in the research I was looking at. Sometimes they're thought to be small, while in other stories they're thought to be about the same size as a human. They've been thought to live in dark places and cause trouble. The idea that goblins are green is actually a modern take on them, more so than what you see in older folklore. In Japan, there are the tengu, which are considered to fall into the category of goblins. They are considered to be half human and half bird, and in early legends, they would cause trouble, like starting fires and eating children, while later legends depict them as less violent and a little more mischievous. Meanwhile, in Britain, they're also considered to overlap with red caps, which I believe we went over in book three. These are creatures that would kill travelers that wandered into their territories, and it was how they kept their red caps red. They would soak them in the blood of the people they killed. In Greece, there is the Kalikantzaros, and they are considered to be goblins, and they live underground except for a couple of weeks during the year. While they're underground during the majority of the year, They're trying to chop down the world tree that is considered to hold up the earth so that everything will collapse, but they're stuck in a cycle of never being able to accomplish it because the tree grows back while they're above ground for those couple of weeks. In Germany, there's the kobold, And they are very similar to the redcaps I mentioned, and they play tricks on people, and are found in mines and other underground areas. Although it's not agreed upon, one source I looked at says that the idea of goblins came about in the 14th century, although it might actually be further back than that. And they're popular parts of folklore in the northwestern region of Europe, as well as in Scandinavia and the United States. A prominent origin story says that goblins came from France and lived in the Pyrenees before they made their way throughout Europe. And some think that the idea of them is connected to paganism, and that's how the idea of them got started. Generally, though, they're thought to dwell in the mountains, and they are opportunistic, waiting for people to come by so they can steal valuable items from them. Some goblins are thought to be connected to a specific household where they would wreak havoc during the night, such as moving furniture and making noise, and then after they do all of that, they'd run away. And when they smile, it's thought to, quote, curdle blood, their laugh to sour milk, and cause fruit to fall from trees. Which doesn't really sound good. Sometimes goblins are thought to be invisible to humans, Sometimes they're thought to be nomadic, and a group of them is called a horde. So far in this series, we don't know a lot about goblins. We know that they're short creatures, and they run the bank, and they had a bunch of problems with Ludo Bagman in the last book. The bank is a safe place to store your money, and it's a place that is extremely hard to steal from. And we've gathered from this chapter that they might end up being tempted to join Voldemort, since they aren't given certain rights under the wizarding world as it currently stands. If we think about what possible overlaps there could be with the folklore we just looked into, what do you think we can expect when it comes to the goblins? Do you think they're likely to join Voldemort? Do you think they'll be against him? Do you think they're powerful in their own ways? Do you think they lean toward one side or the other when it comes to being good or evil? Or do they fall somewhere in the middle? What role do you think they'll have to play in this series? Or do you think they're just mentioned in the background to make the world bigger? Once dinner has ended, Sirius calls Harry out for not asking questions, which he has been, but he hasn't gotten a lot of his questions answered, and he points out that Ron and Hermione said that they aren't allowed in the order. And it's here that tension flares between Sirius and Molly Weasley. Sirius, finally, is sticking up for Harry and saying that it's not a crime for him to ask questions. And he has a right to know what's been going on. Finally, someone else says it besides Harry. And there's another divide here. Fred and George think it's unfair for Harry to get answers when they've been trying to get their own questions answered, too. And Sirius points out that that's the fault of their parents for not deciding to tell them things. Yet Sirius can make that decision for Harry. Although Mrs. Weasley says, quote, it's not down to you to decide what's good for Harry, unquote. But isn't it, though? Sirius is Harry's godfather, so wouldn't it definitely be up to him? That's the whole job of a godparent, especially given that the Dursleys, his legal guardians, really do don't care about Harry and definitely don't have his best interests in mind. And Sirius points out that Harry is the one that saw Voldemort come back. So he has more than a right to know what's going on, and he's dealt with more than others have. Which, again, is exactly the point that Harry was making upstairs to Ron and Hermione. He's not just a dumb kid. He's been through a hell of a lot and so he deserves the respect to have some of his questions answered. And they really argue. Mrs. Weasley says that Harry isn't an adult and he isn't James, and says that Sirius needs to know the difference between Harry and James. And she also says that Sirius has been known to act rashly, so Dumbledore needs to keep reminding him to stay home. And Mr. Weasley kind of toes the line a little bit, saying that Harry will need to know some information now. And Lupin jumps in to say that it's better that Harry gets a direct answer from them instead of a jumbled version from other people. And then Mrs. Weasley says that she is someone who has Harry's best interests at heart. Which, there's really no denying that, but Sirius points out that she isn't the only one. And yet Mrs. Weasley says, quote, the thing is, it's been rather difficult for you to look after him while you've been locked up in Azkaban, hasn't it? Unquote. And Lupin says, quote, Molly, you're not the only person at this table who cares about Harry. Unquote. What do you think about her saying this? My first thought is that it's rather unfair. Sirius didn't do anything wrong. He's quite literally an innocent man who was sent to prison without a trial. He didn't ask for this. If he had it his way, he would have been raising Harry from the moment James and Lily died. Meanwhile, Mrs. Weasley didn't even meet Harry until he was 11. So do you think that was a low blow? Also, what do you think about them throwing shots at each other in front of all the kids like this? Harry states that he wants to know answers. And although he really appreciates what Mrs. Weasley said, and we've seen before how touched he's been by her love and her caring for him, he's also a little impatient and bothered by it because, just like the point he was making to Ron and Hermione, he's not a child, even though technically he is, and he's been through a lot more than other people. So before we dive into the information that Harry gets, whose side are you on here? Molly's or Sirius's? We find out that the Order knows more than Voldemort thinks they know, which is a good thing, and there haven't been any weird deaths yet or anything, which explains why Harry hasn't heard anything from the Muggle news. We also discover that Voldemort's plan hasn't really gone the way he wanted it to. His return was supposed to be a secret, but because Harry survived and told everyone, it got all messed up, so he has to lay low for a while. Harry was able to buy everyone time by telling Dumbledore right away. He was able to reform the Order of the Phoenix within the hour after Harry got back from the graveyard. And if we look back to Goblet of Fire, we can see the beginning of this. When Harry is in the hospital wing. So we see on page, in my copy, page 711, Dumbledore says, There is work to be done. He said... "'Molly, am I right in thinking I can count on you and Arthur?' And Mrs. Weasley says, "'Of course you can.'" And then Dumbledore says, "'Then I need to send a message to Arthur. All those that we can persuade of the truth must be notified immediately, and he is well-placed to contact those at the ministry who are not as short-sighted as Cornelius.'" And then Bill offers to go, and then Dumbledore says, "'Excellent. Tell him what has happened.'" Tell him I will be in direct contact with him shortly. He will need to be discreet, however. If Fudge thinks I am interfering at the ministry, and then Bill says, leave it to me. And then we see two pages later, Dumbledore says, now I have work for each of you. Fudge's attitude, though not unexpected, changes everything. Sirius, I need you to set off at once. You are to alert Remus Lupin, Arabella Fig, Mundungus Fletcher, the old crowd, lie low at Lupin's for a while. I will contact you there. Which is really cool to look back on and see that moment in the text, especially now that we see Arabella Figg and Mundungus Fletcher mentioned and we already met them in this book so far. And I think it's especially cool that all of this happened in the moment and we didn't realize it. We didn't realize what it meant and that it didn't happen, you know, off screen. So in the meantime, they're trying to stop Voldemort's plans, which are that he wants to build up his army again, which would explain why they were discussing about what he would offer the goblins. It's also why he's going after the giants again. And the best way they're trying to combat this is by telling people that he's back, which will allow people to be more on guard and not get bewitched or bullied by him into working for him and joining his ranks. And yet, it's difficult. Why? because of Fudge, who we talked about when we spoke about the whole Percy situation. It all comes down to Fudge being afraid of Dumbledore and being afraid of losing his position. He knows that Dumbledore is more popular than he is, is smarter than he is, is more powerful than he is, and he thinks Dumbledore is using Voldemort as an excuse to take power. And he isn't, but it explains why Fudge is trying to keep an eye on everyone in the ministry and making sure that no one has a tie to Dumbledore. Fudge would rather take the easy way out instead of accepting the truth and dealing with it, which is literally his job as minister. He'd rather pretend it isn't happening because it's easier for the ministry, apparently. So that's great, and it gets even better. Fudge is having the ministry-run newspaper discredit Dumbledore and basically call him fake news to sway people into not believing what's actually going on. Does that sound familiar to you? This is why I believe we can gain so much out of Harry Potter when we read it like this. This book was published in 2003, and yet it still connects to what has been going on in our present nearly 19 years later. And by spreading this information, it actually makes Voldemort's job easier because it makes everybody more susceptible to the Imperius curse since their guard is down and they won't be protecting themselves like they would have during the first wizarding war. And all of this makes it difficult because the order needs to be careful in how they operate because they can't just start saying Dumbledore is right outright because otherwise they'll lose the advantages they have within the ministry because Voldemort will have his spies inside the ministry. And so the order does too. The ministry is doing all it can to discredit Dumbledore and make sure his influence stays outside of the ministry. He's been voted out of the chairmanship of the International Confederation of Wizards after making a speech about Voldemort being back. They demoted him from Chief Warlock on the Wizengamut, which is the High Court, and they want to take away his Order of Merlin first class. And so they're basically trying to take away all of his titles and his influence in the wizarding world. And Mr. Weasley says that Dumbledore could risk facing time in Azkaban, which, okay, if we think about this for a second, my first thought was, does that mean there's no First Amendment in the wizarding world? And, you know, I'm completely reading this through an American lens because I'm an American, and that's what I know. And so I looked into freedom of speech in the UK and in the US. So first, let's look at this from an American perspective. We know that Dumbledore is telling the truth. As readers, we have more information than Fudge does because we've seen firsthand the events of the last book, and we know that Dumbledore and Harry aren't spreading bullshit lies. They're telling the truth. However, Fudge won't listen and is doing everything he can, and he's stripping titles and getting ready to fire anyone who has ties to Dumbledore. And if we think about this, even if Dumbledore was spreading complete BS, if there was freedom of speech within the wizarding world, like there is in the U.S., Dumbledore could not face jail time for what he's saying. Our First Amendment says, quote, "...Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances." A.K.A. the government can't restrict the press or rights of individuals to speak freely, you can't be put in jail for your speech. In the UK, Article 10 of the Human Rights Act of 1998 says everyone has the right to freedom of expression within the UK but that it, quote, may be subject to formalities, conditions, restrictions, or penalties as are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society, unquote. It also says, quote, those restrictions may be "...in the interests of national security, territorial integrity, or public safety, for the prevention of disorder or crime, for the protection of health or morals, for the protection of the reputation or rights of others, for preventing the disclosure of information received in confidence, or for maintaining the authority and impartiality of the judiciary." That sounds more like what the situation is here with Dumbledore and Fudge. I can totally see Fudge making the argument that it's a national security issue and a public safety issue for Dumbledore to be saying what he's saying. So there are clear differences here. And Fudge is doing everything in his power to make sure that Dumbledore doesn't have the same power and influence that he once had because he doesn't want to face the possibility of Voldemort being back. But let's also talk about Azkaban for a second. This is the only prison we've heard about in the wizarding world. And you're subject to be guarded by Dementors while you're there. The same people who use unforgivable curses are locked up with people who say things the government doesn't necessarily like. We can infer from that that everyone goes to Azkaban no matter what their crime is. What do you guys think about that? And also, what do you think about Fudge's role in all of this? And the rights that wizards have in the wizarding world? We also find out in this conversation that Voldemort is not just building up his army, but he's after something that he didn't have before. Like a weapon of some kind. That's when Mrs. Weasley cuts them off and stops them in their tracks. And that's all we get. When it comes to our updates on Voldemort and the current situation in the wizarding world that Harry was missing out on for the last few weeks. What do you guys think about what we learned in this chapter? What do you think we'll see from Voldemort going forward? Do you think Harry should have been given more information? Or do you think that this was just enough? Let me know all of your thoughts at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com, or you can shoot me a DM or tag me on Instagram or Twitter at firstyearspod. For next episode, you need to read chapters 6 and 7, and I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at author sarajonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeier is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.